Okay, don't be afraid. The book of Revelation is not designed to scare you. It's designed to give you hope. It's all about hope. It's all about discipleship. But most importantly, it is all about Jesus Christ. So we are so excited to offer these sermons on the book of Revelation. We hope you enjoy them. So she said to him, boy, look at it rain. What if it floods the whole world? Then one of the great young theologians of our time replied to her and he said, it will never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that would never happen again. And the sign of that promise is the rainbow. And she said, you have taken a great load off my mind. To which our young theologian replied, sound theology has a way of doing that. (laughs) Amen, Sam Sterrett? (laughs) Sound theology has a way of doing that. Linus always gets credit for his Christmas story, but that little dude has a lot of wisdom to offer. So today I want to work towards some sound theology that will bring us comfort. But to do that, we're going to have to unravel a bit of a theological mess that has made its way into the church over the past 170 years. So I want to begin by talking about the church. Revelation describes to us two churches. In chapter 7, which we talked about last week, it does this clearly. Now, we call these the church militant and the church triumphant. And we first see the church militant in the first eight verses of the chapter. And we looked at this last week. The 144,000 sealed with the name of Jesus, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, all of it a symbolic representation of the complete family of God. And this is the important part. The family of God, the church, seen from the perspective of earth. Now, when I read chapter 7, when I look at that list, when I go through that tedious, go ahead and put that back up for just a second, Noah. When I look through that tedious list of 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, I think, John, you could have saved yourself some ink and just told us there are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. (laughs) One sentence, done. But there's a reason for this tedious list. Because he doesn't just want us to know a piece of information, he wants us to see something. So look at this. What does this image look like to you? There's 12 tribes, the little cross inside each box, which I know is probably hard to see, represents us. Just pretend that there's 12,000 of those little crosses in each box. If you're an Aggie, you should totally recognize this. It's not a T, but it is a block formation. (laughs) And if you lived in the first century, John's audience, you were familiar with the Roman legion and you would recognize this too. It's strategic military language, organizing the people for a particular mission here on earth. So this is us, the church militant, the body of Christ on earth with a mission, not to subdue or destroy an enemy. Our Savior has already done that. Our mission, now guided and empowered by the Holy Spirit, is to seek and find the lost, to equip them as disciples so that they can become a part of the family, so that they can turn and find salvation and hope in Jesus. That's the church militant. 
But there is another church, the church triumphant. And today, as Sabrina's mentioned, as we've sung, today's All Saints Day, we celebrate the church triumphant. We remember those who we have lost, who are now healed, who are celebrating eternal joy in the presence of Jesus. That scripture that Sabrina read from Revelation 7, it gives us a peek into what real life is like for those that we love and have lost. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. He will lead them to springs of living water. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. At the end of Revelation, we will hear something very similar, but it will now apply to the church united. Now, these words were written so that when I remember my Mimi and Pop, I lost both of them in this past year, that I will have the joyful knowledge that they are with their Savior, and the next time I see them, they will be at his side. And together we will joyfully, exuberantly usher in the coming kingdom of our risen Lord. That's good news. In the past three weeks, we have celebrated the life and the hope of three of our covenant partners who have made that transition from the church militant to the church triumphant. And we're going to celebrate a fourth in early December. At the end of the sermon, we're going to hear their names read along with all of the others that we've lost in this past year. So the question is, the question the first church wrestled with, and apparently it's something we are still wrestling with today, the question is, how will the church militant join the church triumphant? When will these two churches become one, and how will that happen? Now, there's a passage in Scripture that was written to provide comfort around this issue. If Linus had read it to Lucy, it would have taken a great load off her mind. But over the past 170 years, there's been kind of a unique take on this scripture that I'm going to read in just a little bit, and it's actually caused a lot of trouble. It's caused some grief as we consider the ways in which Jesus will come and make his rule over creation complete. That unique teaching is actually behind much of the fear and the dread that we bring with us to the book of Revelation. Now listen, it is always my intention to preach the gospel. That means that I don't intend to preach against things. My goal is to preach for the gospel. But in our Reformed tradition, sometimes we have to stop and take a step back. We have to hold a teaching up to the scrutiny of Scripture and allow God's Word to be our guide. In church history, unique teaching is typically not a good thing. So we need to always measure it against Scripture so that we can see if it's true. And if Martin Luther could hammer 95 theses to the door of that church, I think it's okay for us to look deeper into one teaching today. (laughs) So I want to exercise that discipline with you. Um, How many of you are familiar with the idea of the rapture? And you can just nod your head. Or you raise your hand, that's fine. Okay. Um, So specifically, this is the idea that Christians will be taken from the earth to be with Jesus. But in a particular way and at a very specific time. Now, maybe some of you have read the Left Behind books. I read them in the 90s when I was coming back into the church. Those books fictionalize the events that we've been reading about in Revelation. So the idea goes something like this. Revelation, from this perspective, is read actually. And remember, we've been talking about what that means. That means that the colors and numbers and images, they're actual specific events. 
and we're waiting for each of these events to take place. They're like markers that let us know when Jesus is coming back. It then goes on to say that the great tribulation, the judgment and the suffering that God is going to send to the earth, that great tribulation will last exactly seven years. But before that happens, all the true disciples of Jesus will be raptured, will be caught up, taken from the earth to be with Jesus. It's a great escape so that we can avoid the suffering that comes with tribulation. It goes on to say that judgment, that tribulation, it plays out as Jesus opens the seven seals, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. As the seven trumpets are sounded, which we will talk about next week. As the seven bowls are poured out, which we will talk about after Advent. This perspective teaches that Christians have been removed from the earth before any of these things take place. That means that everything that we read from Revelation 6 and beyond... We're not here anymore. If that's the case, then why was it all written? Why do we need to know it? So let this all play out in your imagination for a minute. Jesus raptures his followers. They're instantly taken from the earth, no matter what you're doing or where you are. (laughs) Growing up, that's a really good tool for kids, right? (laughs) Make sure you watch where you are and what you're doing. It'd be really bad if Jesus came back right then and saw what you're up to. So in an instant, we're all gone. We're just vanished. Maybe you've seen some bumper stickers that reflect this teaching. In case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. But y'all, it's worse than rogue cars and SUVs. This way of thinking, pilots are raptured. Planes and helicopters fall from the sky. Parents who are enjoying a day in the park are now frantically searching because their children have disappeared. It is absolute chaos. All hell is breaking loose and no one is here to explain to the world what is going on. Y'all, this is what the culture thinks that we believe about the end times. And for some of us, maybe this is what we have been taught. This is what I was taught for a long time. So I just want to show you quickly this morning, it's just not biblical. So far in worship, we have read 22% of Revelation. We have seen chaos unleashed. But it has nothing to do with unmanned cars and planes falling from the sky. Have we read anything so far that resembles anything that I've described to you from this unique teaching? Have we read anything so far that sounds anything like what we find in those Left Behind books? And most importantly, have we seen any evidence that followers of Jesus get to escape the suffering and hardships of this world. That we get to escape the chaos of earth. Do you remember the letter to the Christians in Smyrna? A church that was under incredible pressure. They were facing real suffering. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, hang on, because it's going to get worse before it gets better. (laughs) That was his promise. It's going to get worse. Or what about this from the reading earlier? The one of the elders asks, these who are in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? John answers, you know. That's hilarious to me, by the way. (laughs) You know who they are. And then the elder replies, these are those who have come out of the great tribulation. 
not those who were saved from the great tribulation, those who have come out of it through death and resurrection. Now look, one day the tribulation, all the suffering, it will end and Jesus will return. And as far as I can tell, those who are alive on that day, they're going to see that happen from the perspective of earth. But the vast majority of Christians who have ever lived are going to be coming with him. Because of the tribulation and the suffering that's been taking place throughout history, most will have already been reunited with him through their own death and resurrection. Y'all look, I think this is why the way we read scripture matters. And this is going to sound a little snarky, but I don't intend for it to. When you read Revelation actually, when you read the images and numbers and colors as nothing more than statistics or actual events, you get books by left behind. You end up with unique teaching, and you often end up with theology that causes fear and leads to burden. But when you read Revelation literally as it is meant to be read, as apocalyptic literature that uses colors and numbers and images to paint a picture of who Jesus is and what his coming kingdom is like, then, then you get sound theology, the kind that takes a great load off our minds. This idea that Christians are raptured, it's not found anywhere in the book of Revelation. The Greek word that's translated rapture or caught up or taken up, it's only found once in Revelation, and it refers to Satan attempting to catch and destroy Jesus before his mission can even begin. It has nothing to do with us. So this unique teaching, which is pretty effectively explained by those left behind books, it attempts to interpret the book of Revelation, but it starts with and it's based on a concept that's found nowhere in the book of Revelation. That's a red flag. That's a sign that we need to measure this teaching against scripture and see what we find. So where did this come from? If this came out of nowhere, where did it come from? To understand what's going on, we actually have to leave Revelation and we have to turn to one of Paul's pastoral letters. So this one is 1 Thessalonians. Now, for some of you, that word might sound like an end times event, but it's not. It's just the name of a city. Paul started, pastored a church in Thessalonica, and his letters to them are not apocalyptic messages. They're pastoral letters, and they address the issues and concerns of a community of a church that he loved. This letter to the Thessalonians, it was written 20 to 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And there was one specific issue that was causing Christians there a lot of concern. You see, they thought that Jesus' return would happen before their own death. They thought that they would see him and his kingdom coming from the perspective of earth. And the truth is, most generations throughout history have thought that. You know why? Because none of us think we're going to die. We assume the end is going to come because we can't imagine it any other way. So that was a common assumption among the first Christians, but over time there was a problem. Jesus still hasn't returned, and people that we know and love, they are dying. So the church brings the question to their pastor. If our loved ones have already died, 
does that mean that they're going to miss out? Are they going to miss out on the coming of Jesus and his kingdom? Are they not going to see it? Are they simply out of luck? Will they not enjoy eternity in his presence just because they died at the wrong time? They were dealing with grief. The grief that we all experience when we lose someone that we love. And in response to that concern, not concerns about the end times, but real life concerns about mourning and losing people that we love. Real life questions about the resurrection, about what it means to have hope in Christ. In response to those kind of questions, Paul writes this. He says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together, there's the word, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What does he tell us to do with what he just said? Encourage one another. Not go write a series of books to scare the hell out of everybody. I want you to imagine something for a minute. Imagine trying to describe the sound of a passing airplane to somebody who's deaf. How would you do that? You'd have to appeal to the other senses because it's not like you could compare it to some other sound, right? So maybe you would focus on the way sound feels. You know, that rumble, that deep pulsing that comes with really loud sounds. That ringing that's still in my ears from years of playing in a rock band. (laughs) That makes sense, but this one's harder. Imagine trying to describe a color to somebody who's blind. You might tell them that yellow is bold and strong. Or green is like the smell of a pine tree. You might describe red as something tragic. Blue as the feeling you have when you're sitting by a still pond. The point is that every attempt would be insufficient and incomplete, but you could at least tell them something about the nature of the color or sound you're describing so that they could enjoy it in the ways that they are able. Now imagine you're the pastor of a church at Thessalonica, and your job is to answer the question, what happens after we die? You see, the truth is no person on this side of eternity can sufficiently and completely answer that question. Do you hear that difference? Nobody can sufficiently and completely answer it because we're not there. John, the author of Revelation, he is a front row seat to these things. And as we have read, when he's trying to describe to us what he's seeing, it kind of sounds like someone describing a color to a blind person or sound to a deaf person. Paul didn't have a front row seat to these images of Jesus' coming kingdom. 
He wasn't an apocalyptic prophet like John. He wasn't given a message to communicate to his church or to us about the way that Jesus' kingdom will come. He was just a pastor who needed to offer his church a word of hope. Hope that those who have died are by no means at any disadvantage. Now, he does so using some apocalyptic language. Like John, he draws on what he knows of the Old Testament. And he uses that to help describe colors to the blind. He quotes from some of the same passages that Daniel and Exodus are used by John in Revelation. But he's not writing an apocalypse. He's writing a comforting pastoral letter to his sweet church. He's also not making things up just to make them feel better. He grounds his answer in the truth of the resurrection of Jesus, and then he places their story, the life story of those who have died, he places it within the context of what God is doing in the world. He tells them that their story has meaning as a part of God's great story. And rather than try to describe the details about a place where their loved ones are, or exactly how they will get there, details that he simply doesn't have, he describes to them the nature of who they are with. He reminds them who Jesus is, and he comforts them with the truth that wherever they are and however they got there, they are with him. And because they're with him, they have life eternal. They are free from the suffering and pain of this world. Amen. That is good news. Did you know that until the year 1850, that's 170 years ago, no one in church history, no theologian, no pastor, no writer ever argued or taught that Paul was giving us rapture theology? Not once. Not until John Nelson Darby in 1850. That's when this unique take first came into the church. And for some reason, over the past 170 years, it's really taken hold and it's become very popular in the American church. But its popularity doesn't matter. What matters is the truth. And Paul did not intend to establish theology that would end up on the pages of Left Behind. He meant to comfort his people at a time of great suffering and loss. A scripture that was written to provide comfort and hope has over time been used to create a theology of fear and despair for those who were lost. It's also created a theology of escapism and desertion for those of us who follow Jesus. And when we see that happen in the church, as reformers, we push back. We trust scripture, we reform our thinking and our practices according to scripture. So Paul's words to the Thessalonians, they are the sound theology that we need to take a great load off our minds. His words weren't meant to give me hope that I will one day be zapped away and that I get to escape the suffering of this world. My daily experience tells me that that's simply not true. I wish Revelation taught that we would be free from the effects of pandemics and war and poverty and chaos, but it doesn't. I wish that Paul taught that, but he doesn't. Scripture is consistent from beginning to end. We are here, and there are going to be difficult days ahead. But we are never asked 
to go through anything that God has not taken upon himself. We are not asked to suffer in a way that's worse than the suffering of God himself through the life and death of Jesus. And because he submitted himself to that suffering on our behalf, we can take confidence that his resurrection is waiting for those of us who are in Christ. Now look, like I said earlier, I don't like to teach against things. But this rapture theology, it's dangerous. It's dangerous to the church because it teaches us, it puts our hope in escaping. It teaches us to look forward to an escape to leave the lost world behind to go ahead and suffer. And it creates an us versus them mentality that to me it sounds less like the Great Commission and more like Davy Crockett's famous phrase, I'm going to Texas or heaven, y'all can go to hell. (laughs) Y'all, that is not our mission. The church militant is not ordered to sit in a hole and wait to escape, that is desertion. We are not to abandon the very people that Jesus is trying to save. We are ordered and commanded to go and make disciples of all nations, knowing that our great Savior is with us every step of the way. And for the time being, until my own death and resurrection, I am a member of the church militant, and I have work to do. My sweet grandparents, they've transferred their membership to the church triumphant. And they have peace and joy and wholeness and eternal love. So that means that for now, my family, your families, we are firmly planted on both sides of eternity. Some of us are here and some of us are there. And we all do our part as God's great plan for all creation unfolds before us. So we are here the church militant, and we have a job to do. Those who we have lost in the past year, along with all of the others that came before, they are doing their job, worshiping and enjoying the presence of Jesus now and forever. Amen. And here are their names. Kurt Detmers. Joyce Leroy. Joe Ramirez. Melba Turner. Carol Porter. Donald Warner. Richard Phillips. Helen Murphy. Steve Edmondson. Annie Port. Floyd Cheney, Don Hester, 
Bob Gilbert. And now I invite you to remember the name of someone else you may have lost in the last year. One of the gifts that we have to offer the world is that we are a people who can smile with tears in our eyes, who can look at those faces and miss them, truly, but at the same time have a warmth within us because we know that they're okay. We need to remember that and we long for the day that we're back with them again. But until then, we have work to do. We have a mission to honor and glorify the God who they love and serve as well. Amen. 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 Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website and find us on Instagram at fpc underscore kingwood. We'll see you next time.